Social justice means applying the law equally to all people. But in practice, that doesn't always happen. I'm John Gonzalez. I'm here at my law partner, Jack Derora. We practice law. We seek social justice. On this show, we reveal the conflict between the two. You know, for a while, it was just us in the office over a cup of coffee talking about the news of the day with social justice issues dominating our culture. Our focus became, how do we as lawyers make a difference? And now it's not just us. Today we have Dale Butlin, former press secretary and chief of staff for the late Ohio Senator John Glenn. Dale, welcome. Hi, Gonzo. How are you? I'm doing fine. Uh, Jack, I think Dale shares our concerns about the demise of democracy, and it uh, starts not with the people, but with elected officials. And he had a front row seat to the greatest deliberative body in the history of the world. Well, I would, I would caption that just a little differently. The former greatest <laughs> deliberative body in the world. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Dale, I uh, was reading uh, some of the things that you um, wrote, and I think around the time of uh, Senator Glenn's death, you uh, wrote uh, an article, and in it you said he belonged to an earlier and more innocent era when we trusted our institutions, thought government could accomplish big and important things, and believed politics could be a noble profession. Right. Do you see it different today? Yeah, I, I sure do. And I think that the, one of the things I said in that is that John Glenn may well be the last genuine American hero, not because other people won't do heroic things, but because we're at a point of time now in our history where it's very difficult for us to all cheer for the same national heroes. And uh, I think in John's case, uh, he was a man, and I knew him, I was lucky enough to know him for 20 years uh, working for him, and uh, oftentimes it was in a very intimate setting in the sense that he and I would sometimes just be the two of us flying in his plane. He used to have a little twin-engine beach baron that he'd fly back and forth between wa Washington and Ohio, <clears throat> and so I had a chance to talk to him at some length about lots of different things, and I think John himself would be appalled by what's going on in his Senate uh, these days. You know, before we get to the substance of our discussion, Dale, I, I think I know something about John Glenn that you don't know. Well, tell me. Did you know that he had the transcontinental speed record at one time in the U.S.? I did know that. And, oh, okay. And did you know further that after <laughs> he set that transcontinental speed record uh, from California to New York, he was on a old game show, television game show, that was called Name That Tune. Now, only people of a certain age will remember that show, but he was paired with uh, a celebrity whose name was Little Eddie Hodges, who whose one song that got into the top ten, I think, was called Knock on Your Door or something like that. Anyway, John and Little Eddie Hodges competed on that show because uh, after he set that record, he became somebody, not nearly as famous as he was later, obviously, in the space program, but they uh, put him on that show. So so that's what uh, led to his appearance on a game show. <laughs> I'm really disappointed because I told Gonzo I was certain I was going to stump you with this question. <laughs> but for our listeners, he flew from Los Alamitos, California to New York yeah. in an F-8 yeah. uh, in three hours and 23 minutes and eight seconds, refueling three times airborne. Yes. Yeah, and, and you know, um, of course, he, he was of a generation, too. He was 
uh, a combat pilot in right. not one but two wars, uh, World War II and Korea. Uh, in the latter, uh, Ted Williams, the baseball player, was his wingman. Right. And uh, he actually saved Ted's life, which is another whole story, which I won't burden you with at the moment. But but uh, uh, John fought in two wars, 149 combat missions, I think, in uh, two wars. And, um, and three aerial victories in Korea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, won virtually every military award that you can win. And uh, he, he was something. But then, you know, look, back then, back in those days, we had other politicians and presidents who uh, also had stellar war records. Uh, and, uh, but that generation has passed now. One of my uh, favorite movies is Hidden Figures. And uh, oh, yeah. the way they portrayed uh, John Glenn in that was, I thought, fabulous. Uh, of course, it's a, a more of a story about segregation. But uh, did you ever get to talk to him about how he felt he was portrayed and whether he enjoyed that uh, movie? No, sadly, that movie came out after he had oh, did passed it? away. So, oh. so I never talked to him about that. I did get to talk to him about things like The Right Stuff, which was a movie that came out uh, sadly for us in some ways just before he ran for president back in 1984. And uh, <clears throat> I remember asking John about that, and, and uh, he said he loved the book. He didn't care for the movie as much. And I said, why don't you like the movie? And he said, well, he said, I know Hollywood takes a certain number of liberties. He said, but with Lyndon Johnson, he said he was portrayed as a buffoon in the movie. And he said, now you can say lots of things about Lyndon Johnson, but he was not a buffoon. Right. <laughs> and uh, so he, he, he didn't care much for the movie. Are you referring to the scene in Hidden Figures when John Glenn goes up and talks uh, to the clerical staff or the or the computers? I guess they were called the women in the group. Yeah, well, that's consistent. You know, that's consistent with being a good military officer. You're always conscious of the troops. You're always you're always concerned about the people below you. Yeah, and I, I'm just curious of how accurate, uh, you know, they, they portrayed that in Hollywood because, um, you know, he uh, he obviously felt highly of the human factor mm -hmm. in the space program right. and relied upon it. And it just was a what a great representation of somebody from our state. And you have to remember, too, uh, back then, computers were really in their infancy. And uh, so John and many people at that point, and but particularly if you're going to climb on top of a rocket uh, uh, and your life is on the line, you want to make damn sure those numbers are correct. So he wanted to make sure that this lady uh, uh, wanted to make sure that her numbers matched what the computers were saying, and he really trusted in her more than he did more than he did the computers in those early days. I tell you one other thing that you might find interesting. Uh, many of our listeners maybe have been to Washington, D.C., where they've gone to the Air and Space Museum. And if you go there, you can see John's capsule there uh, that he orbited the Earth in. And there's a little window. And if you look in the little window into the place, what you'll see is what appears to be the steering column. On top of that, there's a little miniature Snellen eye chart, similar to what you see when you go to a doctor's office, an eye doctor's office, you know, yeah. it has yeah, the letters yeah, yeah. on it, A, E, B, C. That little Snellen eye chart uh, was in a like a calendar form, so you'd take one page off and the next page would have the letters arranged in a different order. Well, the reason that's there is that at the time John did his flight, we knew so little about sp space travel there and what the impact would be when you were in an extended period of weightlessness, that there were doctors who believed 
that in an extended period of weightlessness, and I can't remember all the scientific details now, but it had to do with the pressure on your eye sockets and so forth. But the bottom line is they thought you would go blind, or at least there was a chance that you would go blind. So John had to read back this little Snell and I chart to Houston every half hour or so, and he'd tear a page off then and get the next one so that they knew he kept his eyesight and that he he wasn't blind, which I think goes to show just what kind of cojones those guys had back then in the early days when you didn't, uh, you know, look, those rockets were just as likely to blow up on the launch pad as they were to come back safely to Earth. So they, they, they had some real backbone, those guys, and, and uh, I think that's a wonderful example of that. That's a, what a good story. It is. You uh, also told a story about um, kind of John Glenn's integrity, um, as I recall, when he left this, maybe after the space program, went to corporate America and had a pretty cushy job. And um, it had to do with uh, helping um, uh, President Kennedy with his re- with his election. It was actually his brother, Bobby Kennedy, uh, who was uh, John. John did his space flight in 1962 following the space flight. John became really good friends with Bobby Kennedy, and uh, whom he, by the way, never called Bobby, always called him Bob. And, um, <clears throat> but anyway, they became such, such good friends that their families would sometimes vacation together. So uh, after a period of time, John left the military and uh, got a job with, uh, I didn't mention it in the article, but I can say it here, it was Royal, Royal Crown was the name of the company. And he became, John became president of Royal Crown International. This was like 1965 or six. Uh, and I remember him telling me, he said, you know, Dale, he said, they were paying me $100,000 a year. <clears throat> Excuse me, he said, which at that time was real money. He said, we were living in New York, Annie and I, and he said, for the first time in our lives, we had a little money, and we had money. We, we could put our kids through college. We could help our parents as they got older. He said, because, you know, I had always been living on a junior officer, officer salary, so we didn't have any money. He said, now all of a sudden we did. He said, it was great. So uh, 1968 comes along. John's been in the job now. He was president of Royal Crown International and was also a member of the corporate board uh, of the uh, parent company. And uh, six day comes along, and Bob Kennedy calls him. says, uh, John, I'm going to run for president, and I'd like you to campaign for me. And John says, sure, you know, be happy to. So a uh, little time goes by, and John's, uh, John's at home one night. His phone rings, and he had known that there was an emergency meeting of the Royal Crown Board called for the following morning. But he didn't know why and didn't know what the purpose of the meeting was. He gets a call at home the night before, and it's one of his friends uh, from the board. He said, John, he said, this meeting is directed at you. John said, me? Well, why me? And he said, well, we got some powers that be here that aren't real keen on having their highest profile executive being involved with the Kennedys in, uh, you know, 1968. So uh, And so the purpose of this meeting is to pass a resolution saying that no member of the Royal Crown Board can be involved in partisan politics in 1968. So John said, okay, thank you very much. He said, so the next day the meeting occurs. He said, we all walk in, sitting around a big conference table there. And he said, everyone's seated. The chairman comes in, he sits at the head of the table. He said, before the meeting starts, I stood up. And I said, "Um, gentlemen, it's my understanding that the purpose of this meeting is to pass this resolution saying that no one can be involved in partisan politics. He said, well, So I want everyone to know that Bob Kennedy has asked me to campaign for him for president, and I told him I would, and I will, because he's my friend. 
and I've given him my word. And if that means that we can't continue our our association together any longer, I can live with that. <clears throat> but if that's what happens, I want you to understand what happens next. What happens next is we're going to walk out of this room, and you're going to hold your press conference, and I'm going to hold mine, and we'll see who comes out better. <laughs> He said there was just dead silence in the room, and finally the chairman takes the gavel, bangs the thing, ends the meeting, and there was no vote ever taken, so he walked out. But, but the point of that story to me isn't John's politics. It's, it's a guy who was willing to sacrifice the first financial security that his family had ever had to keep his word to a friend. That's the kind of moral courage and the kind of integrity that we just don't see much anymore. How long then did you work with Senator Glenn, and what were you doing for him? Yeah, so I worked for him for 20 years. Uh, I was press secretary for, uh, uh, actually, that's another interesting story. I actually joined his staff in 1980 as a speechwriter. I was his chief speechwriter. And uh, he ran for president in 1984, uh, didn't go as we'd planned. Uh, we rolled that baby out of the garage and the wheels came off. <laughs> so we didn't win the nomination. Uh, and so he went back to the Senate. And as is true in almost all presidential campaigns, you have a bunch of hired guns that come in to do the main jobs in the campaign, the campaign manager, the communications director, this and that. So the press secretary left, uh, as they often do. They all clear out after they presidential campaign's over, so we needed a press secretary. So I went to John, and I said, you know, Senator, uh, I said, I think I could do this job. He said, oh, really? You do, do you? And I said, yeah, yeah, I really do. And and um, he said, why? And I told him why. So he said, well, I'll tell you what. He said, why don't we give it a try? He said, we'll give it three, th- we'll give it three months, and, you know, we'll see what happens. So I said, thank you very much. That's all I want is a shot, you know, at the thing. And, and I am eternally grateful to John for doing that. He, he didn't have to do that because he's John Glenn. And it's not, it's not like he's Senator who from where. And, and, and so, I mean, everybody, there's lots of press secretaries around who had a lot of experience who would have loved to have come in. Anyway, he gave me that chance and it all worked out. I then later became uh, chief of staff for him here in the state of Ohio. And then I ran his last reelection campaign in 1992. Uh, so uh, that's what I was doing for him. How do you uh, see, uh, if you do, the difference between today's Senate and the Senate that John Glenn worked uh, in and that you were working for him at the time? Um, I think what's happened now is that back in the day <laughs> when I was working for John in the 1980s and into the 1990s, I think that uh, – more senators, many more senators, put country over party. President Kennedy once famously said that sometimes the party asks too much. And that's true. There are, there, there are times when you get caught between what you believe is best for the country and what your party is telling you to do. And uh, I think back in the day, I think many more senators were willing to put country over party. Now, I'm not sure that's true anymore, and, and, um, and I don't want to seem hyper-partisan about this, but I think what's happened in the Republican Party, and, and I, I should preface this by saying that while I'm a Democrat, certainly, I have many friends who are Republicans who I've worked with and against over the years, but, but uh, uh, you know, we have dinner together we still, we, we still laugh, we're able to talk together, so it's not like we're enemies. We were opponents, but we weren't enemies, uh, and... What we argued about 
what what politics at its best, you should be arguing about issues. You argue about interest rates. You argue about what tax rates should be, Social Security, Medic, whatever the issue happens to be. What you don't argue about and what I and my Republican colleagues didn't argue about is whether the results of an election should be respected. You know, that that was something I mean, that was something that just went without saying. And the thing that is so bothersome to me today and the reason that sometimes I get very depressed about the state of our country is I don't know if you have one major party now who, in essence, says we're not going to accept the results of of any election we don't win. I don't know how you sustain a democracy. I've been involved in many, many campaigns over the years. And I've won a bunch, and I've lost some. I've been involved with losing some. And I've run campaigns when I've won and lost. And what you do after a losing campaign, and I've given this speech many times, is you go to your assembled team and all the people who volunteered in your campaign, you say, look, we did our best. We did our best. But the voters have spoken, and we came up a little short. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to wish the winner well, and then we're going to start working really hard so that the next time we're going to get them. But what you don't say is, oh, the election was rigged. It was stolen from me. And and you certainly don't inspire an insurrection and a march on the Capitol. I mean, no president in American history has ever done this. Going back to John Adams, who was the first incumbent president to lose reelection. But every single American president has always done the same thing. You you concede gracefully and you have the peaceful transfer of power. That's what makes us America. And we're not at that point now. And it's and and it's not just the members of Congress. If the polls can be believed, you have a majority of one party, one party's members now who still believe the big lie that somehow this election was stolen, even though you've had recount after recount after recount, many of them in states run by Republicans. You've had 62 court cases. You know, you've had the attorney general for the last administration. You've had the campaign manager for Mr. Trump and everybody else we know from the hearings all saying, the election was not stolen. It was legitimate. You lost. Let's get back to the idea that back in the day, senators put country ahead of party. Yeah. Give me a sense, if you can remember anything in particular, about pretty hard fights that John Glenn had with other senators, where that kind of notion, country over party, prevailed. Well, for for example, uh, John was very strong on national defense. He was a member of the Armed Services Committee uh, as well as the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and the and the Intel Committee. Um, he had, when President Carter was president, just as an example, there were policies that the Carter administration wanted to pursue, notably with respect to nuclear weapons through the SALT talks, that John just didn't think were in the interest of the country. And, so, and just for reference, the SALT talks were talks designed to lower the number of nuclear warheads on each side. Yeah. Now, okay. now let me let me hasten to add that John was the author of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Act of 1974, which, okay. which is the one law that's still on the books, actually, that seeks to limit the spread of nuclear weapons around the world. So he was very much in tune with that. But he also thought that you didn't want to do, you, you didn't want to 
unilaterally disarm right. with vis-a-vis vis the Russians, for example, uh, when they were still the Soviet Union. And so, so many times he opposed the Carter administration on things and cast votes that they didn't like. Uh, that's just one example, but but there but there are others too. And 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 I I you know the other thing is is that when you take your oath of office when you're a senator or a congressman. Uh, or a president, for that matter, you take an oath to the Constitution, not to a person, right? A and that's a major difference too. But once you, if you take that oath seriously to the Constitution, that will require you to put country above party. When you were, you know, talking about um, the kind of the Republican theme about the election was stolen, and. Um, they're just not giving up on that. To me, the reason is, is because they realize that's their ticket to office, that there are people in America that are going to vote for Donald Trump because they believe the election was stolen. Whether Donald Trump or any of the other Republican office holders that are saying it, which we all know is not correct, it's because people are going to vote for them for having said that. And so it... Reminds me of something, I, again, I was reading what you had written and then some things from our founding fathers, but it, it was from John Adams, and, and Jack had pointed me towards John Adams, but he wrote that the Constitution requires moral people. Adherence to law requires Americans to buy into the system and work together to uphold the republic. What I find poignant about that is it's not talking about politicians doing it, it's talking about us, people. So if we didn't buy into it in large numbers, these politicians would be out of a job, and I guarantee you they'd stop saying it. Well, and, and, and the problem is that we have become tribalized now as a society, right? And we are we repair to our red or blue teams, and no matter what, as long as uh, a person or a policy is wearing the right jersey, why we're going to be for them. And if they're wearing the wrong jersey, we're going to be against them. And, and that's fundamentally... Uh, destructive, uh, I think, of of a republic, and the people that I hold most responsible uh, is not Donald Trump. I mean, I we all know who Donald Trump is and what he's done his entire career, even before he got into politics. He's always been a grifter and a you know and a phony. But but it's these people in the U.S. Senate, for example, who know better. We're talking about highly educated people, people who went to some of the Ivy League schools, Harvard and Yale. And you've got, you know, we even have one running for the Senate here in the state of Ohio now, J.D. Vance. J.D. Vance, a product of Yale Law School. He knows better than this. But as you said, Gonzo, he is convinced that if he if he continues to to propound the big lie that will get that will get him the nomination which it did and he's banking it'll also get him the you know election in the fall because we now have become a fairly republican state so i i really hold people like that responsible because they know better and they're doing this strictly for their own political fortune you know it seems that we actually have a twofold problem one is this tribalism that you talked about think it's hard to escape that. The second is we also have some institutional impediments that slow us down. I mean, what was drafted or what was yeah, what was drafted in the Constitution in 1789, 89, thank you. 
some of the stuff that's in there just doesn't work anymore. Why don't we talk about that for a minute? Sure. I actually wrote a piece about that uh, for the for the dispatch, um, and and it, it, the m- m- motivation for my piece was uh, the leaked Supreme Court decision, uh, which reversed Roe. And I said, you know, many people wonder, well, how is this possible? I mean, Roe has been the law of the land for 50 years. It's been reaffirmed several times. And there's a principle called stare decisis that every, uh, even non-lawyers like me know, you're supposed, which means that the court is supposed to let settled law stand unless there's some compelling reason to overturn it. And I said, well, so what's changed since Roe was first decided? It's not the number of abortions. They're half of what they were in the early 1980s. They've dropped. It's not public opinion, which has been very consistent over time. What's changed is the identity of the court. And you have new members on the court. So I started saying that here's what the problem is. We're hobbled now, I think, by three compromises that were made back in at the time the Constitution was being ratified. These were compromises that were necessary to get the southern slave-owning states to sign on to the Constitution. <clears throat> and you know, popular wisdom is that oh, the 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 uh, the real uh, uh, argument back in those days was between the big states and the small states. It really wasn't. Actually, Virginia was the most populous state in the union back then, and it was became the capital of the Confederacy. Uh, but it it was between the northern states and the southern states, and the southern states were concerned that in a democracy, a, a majoritarian democracy, they would be per- persistently outvoted. Because remember, at the time the Constitution was passed, only white men who owned property could vote. And in the South, there were many more slave owners than there were slaves. Uh, excuse me, that's the other way around. There were many more slaves than there were slave owners. So the slave owners were concerned. They were the ones who voted. They were concerned they'd be outvoted. So. We have three compromises. The first uh, was that uh, in the U.S. Senate, every state would get the same number of senators regardless of population. The second was that we would elect the president not by direct popular vote, like we elect every other office in the country, but through the Electoral College. And then the third, of course, was counting slaves as three-fifths of a person. Um, So, you know, if you fast forward now, so... The reason that Roe has now been overturned is because you have four of the five justices who voted to overturn Roe were appointed or nominated by presidents who lost the popular vote but won the presidency through the Electoral College. And those nominees were confirmed by an unrepresentative Senate in which the 43 million people who live in California get two senators— while the 1.6 million people who live in the Dakotas get four. <laughs> and so, you you know, it's the same as to you have Idaho, you have Montana, you have the, you know, you, you have all these thin, Wyoming, all these thinly populated states, some of which, by the way, are Democratic, uh, you know, Vermont and Rhode Island are great, great examples. But, but the point is, these compromises were anti-majoritarian. And, and and we're hobbled by that today, and I don't know how you turn it around because it would require a constitutional amendment. But under the Constitution, that has to be passed by uh, two-thirds of, the, of both houses of Congress plus three-quarters of the states. 
Well, three-quarters of the states, particularly since many of those states are the smaller states that have this extra um, power in the Senate, have no intention of changing it. So we, we have a problem. And my concern is, is that if the majority will continues to be thwarted over a long period of time, that's not going to stand. At some point, there's going to be a reaction to that. And uh, because we live in what most people regard as a democracy, where if you have the majority, then then you get your way. Well, that's not the case now. Uh, I'm sorry, Dale, how does the three-fifths compromise factor into that? And is it, in my mind, is that the you know, are we seeing that in modern terms today by all the voting restrictions that these places are putting in that affect, really, the minorities more than anybody? Yeah, well, one of the, probably the main reason for the three-fifths there is that in the House of Representatives, which is based on population, where the number of the number of representatives you have in the House is based on your population. So if you didn't count slaves at all, uh, then obviously, you know, they wouldn't. But if you counted them as three-fifths and you had a large number of slaves, you could. You uh, So there was that. There was other things about the census and so forth, which is probably not important to get into now. But, but, but there is an attempt now, as you say, Gonzo, to, to uh, limit people's voting. Um, and, and, you know, the funny thing is, and here's the point that I keep asking over and over again, no matter what voting restriction you're talking about, and it doesn't matter which one it is, the argument for it is always the same. And that is, oh, we want to stop fraud, except there is no fraud <laughs> in our elections now. And you see that over and over and over again. Every secretary of state, including ours in Ohio, will tell you there is no. I mean, of course, there's always once in a while. You, I mean, you're, but you're talking about you know de minimis uh, kinds of things where somebody uh, votes. I think they found three people who were dead who voted in you know Illinois or someplace. But but I mean, it's just not enough to turn an election. So there is no fraud. So what is it you're really trying to do? Well, what you're really trying to do is suppress the votes of people who you don't think are going to vote for you. <laughs> and exactly. so that's kind of yeah. where we are. <laughs> exactly. There's another aspect. Um, th- those are institutional failures or constitutional failures. Yeah. But we, you know, we also now have something that's not in the Constitution that's holding us back, and it's the big bugaboo that nobody can agree on, and that's the filibuster. Yeah. And I get the sense that the re- the only reason the Democrats um, are hesitant to revoke that, I guess you would call it a parliamentarian rule because it's not in the Constitution, is for fear that it, if they're the minority, it will work to their detriment. Talk about that for a minute. Yeah. So as you point out, Jack, uh, the filibuster is not part of the Constitution. It is a Senate practice, uh, and it was uh, first used in 1837. So that was some years after the Constitution was passed. In the early years, uh, following from 1837 on, it was used sparingly and usually to thwart civil rights legislation. Uh, again, it's it's weird how many things in our country go back to race, you know. But but a lot of the filibustering, particularly uh, during the 50s, 60s, and then into the 70s, was used to thwart civil rights legislation. But it was used fairly sparingly. What changed was when Obama came into office, 
and uh, and I remember I can't I can't remember the exact number now, but it was something like seventy eight percent of all major legislation proposed by Obama was filibustered. I didn't know it was that high. Yeah, and well, if you remember, uh, Mitch McConnell famously had a meeting. In fact, George Voinovich, the former senator from Ohio, Republican senator, wrote a book in which he talked about this. And he said we went to a meeting. Uh, right after Obama was elected, and he said we were told by Mitch that everything Obama was for, we were going to be against. Everything he was against, we were going to be for, because our goal was to make him a one-term president. Well, but the practical effect of all this means that you can't get anything done or passed unless you have 60 votes, which is the threshold number that you need to cut off a filibuster. It's called cloture. Uh, So, but when you go back again to the founding fathers, and, 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 and this is what's so odd, lots of people say, oh, we got to go back to what the founding fathers thought. Well, if the founding fathers thought that every piece of major legislation should have to have a supermajority to pass, they'd have said so. But they didn't. The way it's supposed to work is 51 votes is supposed to be enough to carry, except for three areas, treaties, impeachments, and what's the third one? Uh, treaties Constitutional and constitutional amendments. That has to have a supermajority. Outside of that, everything else is supposed to be 51 votes. Uh, so now we're in this ridiculous situation where lots of things get passed in the House. They come to the Senate to die. Nothing gets done. The public is frustrated because they say, well, nothing's getting done, even though we have overwhelming public sentiment in favor of this or that. So I, I, I personally believe that the filibuster ought to go. And yes, it is true, uh, Jack, that the reason uh, some Democrats are not willing, don't want to do that, although, frankly, we're down to two now. It's mansion and cinema of Arizona uh, is because they think, well, the next time we're in the minority, they're going to use it against us. Yeah, maybe they will. But it seems to me that every president, no matter whether it's a Republican or a Democrat, ought to have a chance to try his or her program. Hopefully there will be a her someday as president. Ought to have a chance to implement their program. Then the voters have a chance in four years to say thumbs up or down. Whether If they don't like what the administration's done, they can vote them out of office. But you can't just stymie everything and get nothing done ever because that's just a formula for not just an action, but uh, you're going to have a lot of people very disappointed, to say the least. Well, the real, the real shortcoming of it is what you – it becomes the secondary matter. That is, the people suffer. So the po- the politicians may gain in terms of whatever positioning, but it's you, me, and Gonzo. We're the ones that get hurt. Things don't happen. Right. Well, we do away with the filibuster. Uh, Jack and I also thought maybe we should just do away with the Senate and just have one governing body. I know it's fanciful to think that way, but uh, a few years back, uh, my wife was in the Ohio, um, uh, Ohio politician, and... Um, when they were giving raises, people started saying, wait a minute, we obviously spend a lot of money on our representatives. Why don't we have just one house of fewer people? But I don't see why that couldn't work on a larger scale. It's never going to happen because, like you said, it, uh, the people that it affects most would have to buy into it. But I also think there's a third option. A junta. 
No, 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 no. Uh, <clears throat> we, we came should, close to that. Yeah, uh, any uh, old white person like you or me, Jack, cannot run for office after the age of 60. <laughs> well, but that too would require a constitutional amendment because, uh, you know, the Supreme Court has ruled a number of times now that, that the Constitution lays out the qualifications to be president. It says you have to be at least 30 years old. You have to be native born, right? But uh, but you don't, it doesn't say anything about how old you can be in the end. That's also why term limits suffered and didn't go anywhere, uh, term limits for Congress, that is, because the Supreme Court said, sorry, uh, the the Constitution lays out what the what the requirements are, and it doesn't say anything about term limits. I, I personally don't like term, term limits anyway because I think they're fundamentally anti-democratic. I, I think what term limits say is that the people are so fundamentally stupid that they can't determine what's in their own best interest. So we will have to arbitrarily limit their choices. And, and I, I just don't buy that. I think we have elections. I mean, term limits are elections. I have Go ahead, two, Jack. I have two comments. Yeah. The first is unrelated to what you just said. I want you to know this has been a momentous podcast because this is the first time that Gonzo has realized that he and I are in the same ca- age category. <laughs> but but he looks so generous. much younger than you, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> he, well, Jack that's, would have gray hair if he had hair. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get <laughs> Dale, you're no longer a welcome guest on this podcast. Um, I, I take I, I am a big believer in term limits for this reason, yeah. and that is this: these fellows, I don't know if there are any women, probably maybe a few, have been in D.C. for so long that they lose touch with the common man. And I remember years back during the presidential race in France one of the candidates was asked something like, what's it cost to get on the metro? Crazy question. But the point of the question was to show that this man is out of touch with what the working man does. Mm -hmm. And so when we have people that have been in Congress for 30 years, they are so far and removed, I think that's why you have to limit them. Well, and Jack, I don't disagree that there are many members of Congress who are out of touch. Absolutely right about that. But I would say to you, Jack, there's nothing stopping people from voting their, them out of office. Well, you're absolutely right. But for some reason, they get powerful enough that they are able to squelch any intruder on their turf. Well, I don't think that the stats bear you out on that. Okay. Uh, the reason that Nancy Pelosi is the Speaker of the House today is because in 2018, 50... 50, uh, you know, Republicans were beaten in swing districts by Democrats. Now, what I will say, and, and, and this is something we haven't talked about yet, what does change the equation a little bit is gerrymandering, sure. right? That's, that is a problem because you can, you know, with the use of computers now, you can, you can uh, draw these maps down to the house level. I mean, you know, the, the individual person's house. And you can draw these districts so that the other party has no chance. And that's simply not right, which our Supreme Court ruled four different times uh, with regard to the statehouse districts here. Um, so so I, I, I think if you, could, if you could, insofar as possible, require whoever is holding the pencil, maybe it's an, maybe it's an independent commission. I think you take it out of the hands of the party. But you say, okay— 
insofar as possible, you draw these districts so they're equal between Democrats and Republicans. If you did that, what happens? Right now, what happens is when you're in a gerrymandered district that is overwhelmingly Republican, for example, you don't have to worry about the general election. You just have to worry about getting beaten in the primary, which means an attack from your right. If you're a Democrat, it's the reverse. It's an attack from your left, and you, but you don't have to worry about the general. So that puts a premium on not compromising to get something passed, because if you compromise, then you're a squish, you're a rhino, whatever they call you, you know, and, and, and you'll get primaried. But if you now, but if you if you had these districts roughly even, all of a sudden the whole dynamic completely flips. Now, if you're Republican, you know you got to get some Democrat votes to win, and vice versa. So now the premium is put on compromise, not on not compromise. And unfortunately, all of that rests on the premise of the politicians putting country ahead of po- party, or yeah, country ahead of party, and as was demonstrated with the redistricting of Matt. Uh, the map redistricting couldn't happen. Well, it, except what happened, I think, is that I think the Republicans who run the legislature here uh, kind of uh, torpedoed the will of the people because people voted twice by very large numbers to have to draw fair districts, right? What we didn't vote on was having an independent commission to actually draw those districts. So when you leave it in the hands of the politicians, this is and by the way, this is true of my party, too. This is true of the Democrats. If we had the pencil, we'd probably do the same thing. So so it's I'm not making a case here just against Republicans. Take it out of the hands of the politicians. Put it in the hands of an independent commission. Uh, experts who can draw these lines in a fair way, in a balanced way. And then everyone has an equal opportunity to compete. Uh Term limits didn't really affect the Republicans' control in Ohio at all because of gerrymandering. So it didn't matter. My wife served her four terms and was term limited out. So it didn't really matter there, right? I mean, another Republican can take over that seat if it's gerrymandered in the right direction. So the Republican Party controls the seat, not necessarily the same individual forever. So I do think that gerrymandering is the, the problem that needs to be fixed or eliminated. That will go a long way to helping all of us vote for somebody else if we don't like the person that's in there. Because the key is, as you say, Gonzo, the key is we got to have the voters choosing their repres- uh, choosing their politicians, not the politicians choosing their voters. <laughs> and right, <then> exactly, <laughs> exactly. I also think it's a way to hold uh, politicians accountable, which is not really happening anymore because, as you said, I'm a Republican. I'm only going to vote for the Republican. So if my party Republican is a sinner, I'll put that aside because I'm just not going to vote for the Democrat. And it's uh, it's too bad too many people feel that way. And Jack and I know people like that. They their their excuse is, well, I don't necessarily like that person, but I'm going to vote for the Republican candidate. It's crazy to me. It really is. Dale, we appreciate you coming in. Um, I am uh, jealous that you were able to uh, be a part of such a great American's life. Uh, John Glenn is one of those people that, in my mind, and I'm a Republican, is the epitome of everything that was good in both the uh, military, the space program, and politics. And uh, the fact that you got to spend time with him must have been a wonderful thing. 
it was the highlight of my professional life for sure. And, and thank you very much for your kind words and for your kind words for John, who's no longer here to appreciate them. But, but he was a wonderful, wonderful man. Well, I have two things to say. First of all, um, I am obligated to remind our audience that every time Gonzo says he's a Republican, I have to remind them that he's actually a rhino. <laughs> and um, I wish I, I never had the chance to shake hands with John Glenn, but I wish I could have because they people would joke about him being the poster boy of the American hero, but by golly, he was. Our thanks to WOSU and our sound engineer, Eric French. If you like what you've heard today, tell a friend. We want this show to be more than just us. We'd like it to be, be all of us. We'll be back in a few weeks with another important social justice issue. Until then, so long. <laughs>